Morning. Morning. My name is Daniel Morgan. I'm one of the executive pastors here. Uh, excited to start this series with you. Uh, I've been talking to various people throughout our church and realizing that uh, if you're here today or if you're joining us online, that you may be here f- coming from a variety of different places. Some of us are still grieving that a very good friend of ours and a senior pastor has moved after many years in ministry. Uh, a personal friend of mine, it's been really difficult to see my kids crying as his kids are leaving. Uh, some of you are probably a lot newer and that doesn't even make a great deal of sense. And uh, some of you, particularly those that have volunteered or helped in our staff development of this series, are probably just really excited because we put a lot of effort into this series. Uh, what you can do to participate uh, in this series is to come each week expectantly. Expectant that God will continue to move forward in the life of our church, in your family, in your pursuit of him as he Uh, completes kingdom work in our lives, in our neighborhoods, and in our church. And I don't ever want to come up to preach the gospel or to even sit in a pew and listen to the gospel proclaimed and have a low view or an unexpected view of what God's going to do in his power. Amen? This series is going to work this way. The logistics of this series are that uh, we have six Sundays, and we're going to be preaching on various aspects of this topic. And then in between those, in our group time, we have about 20-minute videos or so that we filmed actually quite a long time ago when Russ looked a lot younger and had less wrinkles. Uh, And those will be for our small groups that you'll watch during the week. And then we have a handbook for you to go through some discussion questions, talk in your group about those videos and the topic. And then we have one or two little daily exercises that you'll have throughout the week that you can do for reflection and things like that. And so I highly encourage you to get into a group and study along with us. It's going to be pretty good. Those will be available both in person and online. Now, why are we studying Sin or doing a, a sermon series on sin, uh, the purpose of this is not to beat you up. It's not to leave here under you know, this, this rough feeling like, man, I'm, I feel shame, I feel condemnation. The, the wonderful thing about the gospel is that when you talk about anything, particularly when you talk about sin, where you always get to end up as a believer in Jesus Christ is in a hopeful place, Amen. Because God didn't merely come down and die in order to justify and and justify us and give us access to God. Jesus came down and died for us at the heart of the gospel is to empower us to actually finally win this fight against sin so that we could be in restored life and relationship with Jesus. And every message that is at the center of the gospel ends on a message of hope, not on condemnation. So we're studying this uh, for the first reason is to understand the gap. I used an analogy a week or two ago that uh, about talking about my kids getting to see the Grand Canyon and getting this idea, the scope of how really big it is. If you've ever been out on, on the ocean, when you finally get a view of how big the ocean is and how insignificant you are in the midst of the ocean and when it moves, things just go wherever it wants them to go and you don't have a lot of choice over it. And, and understanding sin allows us to understand that the gap between us and God was so vast, so great, that nothing in our own power was ever going to close that gap. And the reason we, we want that perspective is so that we understand how great the mercy and love of God is that closed that gap where we never would have been able to. That's number one. And then number two, the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, spends a great deal of time warning us about the danger of sin. And yet we have this 
constant tendency to underestimate it, both before, certainly, Christ, but even as a believer, we have this tendency to underestimate our sin. When, in the New Testament, believers got really serious about holiness, they got really serious about pursuing God, they got really serious about their view of sin and wanting to run from sin and wanting to run after Jesus and just throw everything else aside, what happened over and over again in the New Testament is that revival would break out. Because what follows repentance in the individual's heart and it begins to happen uh, corporately leads to revival. The spirit begins to actively move in more powerful ways when the church gets really serious about chasing after Jesus and leaving everything else on the curb. Amen? Well, two people believe that. Okay, well, I'll see if I can convince you as we read through scripture here and maybe there'll be more of us by the end. Now, the way that you can apply this Uh, series as we go through these six sermons and five small group series is to apply this to yourself. This is a first person series. So as we go through this, you're asking, how does this apply to me? How does this change my view of God? How does this view change my view of other people? This is very much first person. So this is not about other people. I know that you're going to hear this and you're thinking, man, I wish my neighbor Karen was here because Karen really needs to hear this. But this is for us. This is for you. This is a first-person series. We want to really do some introspection here, apply it to me. And then the second thing you do is be very vulnerable in your groups. Be authentic, be open, take some chances in your community groups. Uh, I think that will pay dividends for your walk with the Lord. We're going to start in Genesis 4 with this story of Cain and Abel. And if I'm being frank, I have overlooked this uh, story over. I mean, I've read this story a lot of times, and if you were to ask me without studying it, like, what's that story about? I would have probably given you, like, two things, like, Cain kills his brother, and then he gets cast off. You know, it, it, I've, I've overlooked the depth of the story and what God is doing in this story to talk to you and I about sin. So I, uh, I want to spend some time in Genesis 4, 1 through 16 today. We're going to cover these three things in the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, And they all start with the letter S because I'm Baptist. All right. Number one, the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. Number two, the sweetness of God. And number three, the significance of sacrifice. The significance of sacrifice. I made a joke of this because I'm Baptist, but actually Tim Keller came up with these points in like 1998, and he's not even Baptist, so I guess it works for everybody. Okay. Okay. Backstory to the, to, before we start, we open the scripture and read from Genesis 4.1. In Genesis 3, we have the Garden of Eden. Everything is perfect. People are in relationship with God. Adam and Eve are walking with God. Everything is awesome. And then there is sin that enters the world. Uh, Eve disobeys God. Adam doesn't steward his wife. There is sin. It's broken. God has to curse them, cast them out of the garden. So now we have sin, which means we have death because there was no death. There was no pain before this. And we get to the next point in the story after they've been cast out of the garden, sin has entered the world, it's broken this perfect relationship, and we end up here. Now, we are going to talk about Genesis 3 this week in our community group, so we're going to go back and kind of look at that story a little bit in, in, in more detail this week. Here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1, are you with me? Four people. Okay, we have two more than last time. See, we're already multiplying. I like this. <clears throat> verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, 
Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Right off the bat, we have this interesting story we haven't heard of before where Cain and Abel are each bringing offerings to the Lord. And it says that Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock. It says that Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain, he, his, his offering, he had no regard. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a minute. And why would God have regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain's? Uh, I want to walk through that. I think that's an important point, but I, I want to start first with the seriousness of sin. So I want to get to that. At the end of verse 5, we have this inter uh, in interesting interaction between God and Cain. Cain has been corrected by God. His offering has, uh, he's had no regard for his offering. And so Cain was, here's at the, the back end of this. So Cain was very angry. So he's been corrected, and his response to being corrected is anger, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, I want you to hear this, why are you angry? Don't you love it when a parent asks a child a question that they already know the answer to? No one else does that? I do that all the time. Okay. Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to this. This is one of the most... Uh, rich verses in the entire Bible when it comes to God describing sin to humans in, in all the Bible. So remember, sin is a relatively new thing. It just happened in chapter 3. Sin, this is verse 7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, so sin has a desire, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The Hebrew word for crouching uh, that we see crouching is used here in the ESV. We have a couple different words that are translated out depending on your version, but in the ESV, it's crouching. And the Hebrew word for that is robes, and it is actually a very specific word that means uh, it's more narrow than the word crouching. It actually means when a predator, particularly a four-legged predator, so in this case, we'd be thinking about a lion, a mountain lion, a leopard, a tiger, something like that, is, is ready to pounce. So that, that stance that, who, how many people have a cat? Lord bless you, those things are crazy. Okay, 
You ever seen your cat when it sees like a bird and it gets into that sort of stalking mode and it, it gets low and it begins to slink after and, it, and it, it goes like full instinct predator mode, right? Okay, that, that is actually the word that's being used in Hebrew here. So it's not crouching. It's, it's rich with all this connotation that sin is hunting you. It's pursuing you. It has got down on its hind legs and it is ready to leap on you. It wants to devour you, but you must win. You must rule over it. Now, there's three really important things that we need to learn about sin based on the way God is describing sin to Cain right here, because he's also describing it to us. He's telling us some things about the nature of sin that are actually really important, okay? Here's the first. Sin is completely against you. Sin is not for you. Now, you're like, yeah, duh. No, no, listen. You and I make a lot of decisions in life. A lot of the sin that we make in life are really about a sort of selfishness in its nature, right? It's something we do for ourselves. And usually it's something that we do for ourselves or we want to feel a certain way for ourselves because we kind of think, not maybe that it'll be good for me, but that I'll like it, that I'll enjoy it. Maybe intellectually we could say like, oh, in the long term, I know that's probably not good for me, but it's going to feel really good, right? No one has ever eaten a donut in here? Come on. <laughs> we do, correct? I mean, we, we make these decisions. They're like for us. We think of it as, we think of sin as an indulgence for ourselves, but sin is never for you. It's never for you. A predator that's hunting you is never for you. Do you understand? There's no antelope in the field that gets up and there's a lion next to it. And he's like, he's probably a friend. Ever, Right? It's never for you. Here's here's why I I want you to understand that. What is at the heart of sin, and we're going to study a little bit of this more this week when we look at Genesis 3. If you look at the heart of sin, if you look at what Eve is being deceived of in the chapter before this, what is the serpent's reason? How How does he convince her to eat this? It's not just that the fruit looks good. That's not it. Everything looked good in the garden. Come on, give me a break. They were naked. Everything looked good. Okay. That's not the issue. The issue is the lie. The lie is this. You could be like God. Now, why would that matter? They had a great relationship and everything was perfect. Oh, oh, oh. The lie is that if you could make your own choices outside the authority of God, if you could choose what was best for you, it would get better. Right? If you could just be like God and make your own decisions, it would be better. That's the lie. You know that lie comes from the serpent, right? Do you know why the serpent, which is Satan, Lucifer, you know why Lucifer got thrown out of heaven in the first place? That exact thing. We don't even have a lot of stories about Satan in the Bible that are very specific, but we have one in Isaiah. And I want you to hear this, okay? Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 is going to describe to us that Lucifer was thrown out of heaven because he wanted to be God. Here it is. How... You are fallen from heaven, O day star son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, who, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit." 
The, the, the lie that is being described, the lie that you and I are buying into, every time we, we choose to make our own decisions outside of the authority of God, is the same lie that Eve falls for in the garden, but it's actually the same problem that Lucifer had while he was cast out of heaven in the first place. It's that, can, can I just be honest, you and I make terrible gods. Can we just admit that, that we don't make very good gods? If, if everything went the way I actually wanted it to go, it would not go well. My track record says it would not go well, amen? We know we don't make good gods, and yet what is at the, the core of that temptation over and over again when it comes to sin is that we just keep thinking, boy, if I could have my way, if I could just be God. And at the heart of sinful choices outside the authority of God is this idea that if I could be outside the authority of God, then things would be really good, and that's the lie. Sin is never for you. Second thing that we see in this, this picture of sin is that sin is very, very hidden. But, but the nature of sin is to be hidden. The nature of sin is actually not to be easy to see and simple to understand. It's actually to be hidden, okay? Why does that predator, your cat, or a mountain lion, why does it crouch? To not be seen. If, if the prey could see the predator, they would run. That's the whole point, right? You've seen the Facebook videos where the antelope sees the crocodile coming out of the Nile and it takes off. A predator gets low and gets small in order to hide itself. It does it in two ways. One is to be smaller and one is to be invisible. But, but predators try to make themselves seem smaller so they seem like they're not a threat so they can get closer to you so they can devour you. And, and we do that with our sin, don't we? When I say, I want you to consider, let me say, if, uh, I want you to consider your hidden sins. The first thing that is going to come to mind is like that maybe, you know, people are hiding these incredibly shameful, terrible pasts that are, that are awful things. But in reality, that's not most of our hidden sins. Most of our hidden sins are actually sins that we know about. We just keep telling ourselves that they're not really a big deal. Oh, is that just me? Most of us know that we have sin in our life. We know there's some things that we've been tolerating, but sin loves to make itself seem smaller, and then we're okay leaving it over in the corner, and it's going to be all right. That's not going to grow into something that's going to be devastating to my life because it looks pretty small. That's in the nature of sin to do that. It's always trying to look smaller. So you'll leave it, and you won't go deal with it. The second thing that sin does is it tries to be invisible. I was, I was sitting down over the course of the week and I, was, I, was, you know, I just went through this exercise. You could do this right now in your bulletin. You can take your pen out. You don't have to share this with anybody. If your spouse is trying to look at your list here, you can just put your elbow up so they can't see because I'm sure they don't know what your sins are because they only live with you. <laughs> and you could write out what you believe are the struggles, temptations, and sins in your life. Okay? Let me tell you mine. Let me, let me, this is just a, a good example of how sin tries to make itself look small. Here's mine. I wrote this out this week. Too, spending too much time on my computer, lacking the self-discipline in the areas of my, my health, my body, my nutrition, just stewarding my body, a poor regard that I have at times for spending time with the Lord alone, an impatience with people, and a lack of empathy for others and their situations. Now, here's the thing about those, Right? Well, none of those things sound devastating, right? I mean, it's not really that big of a deal. I didn't murder anybody. 
And if you give me enough time, I can come up with some really wonderful justifications and analytical reasons that these aren't really that much of a problem. Because that's what sin does. Sin, sin gets into our life and it says, look, I'm not that big of a deal. Just leave me in the corner and go work on something else. I'll be okay. It's not going to grow. It's not going to be a problem. And so I could write something out like this and go, I guess I'm doing pretty good. Let's just leave these and move on. The grace of God is that God has allowed me to like fall absolutely on my face in these areas in a shameful enough way that I've had to learn that they really are devastating. And I say that's a grace of God. That's not a problem. That's actually a blessing. Sin wants to trick you into thinking that it's smaller and more innocent and more innocuous than it really is. And the second thing that a predator crouches for is to remain invisible. It would rather you not see it at all. And you and I both in our life right now, we have sin that we don't even see. We don't even recognize. We don't even know it's there. And in this series, in a couple weeks, we're actually going to look at the difference between sins of omission and sins of commission. But here's the thing. It makes sense, right? If there's a predator crouching outside the door and I'm not supposed to open the door, I'm going to get devoured by it. How am I supposed to know it's out there? Crouching, trying to look invisible. You know what I'm going to have to have in order to see that in my life is I'm going to have to have some other people around close enough to me to know me, but maybe on the other side of the door that can be like, yo, I wouldn't walk outside right now. There's a 400-pound lion there. Again, guys, the, the reason we keep pounding into your head that we want you in a community group is not because somehow we get like a heavenly commission on your attendance. We don't actually have a little counter where we get any sort of pay because you get in a community group. We want you in a community group because if you will do life with other people and you will love on them and they will love on you and you both love Jesus, then at some point they're going to go, hey, brother, I see something in your life that I think is devastating. Like it's small now, but it's, it wants to devour you. And if you're doing life with them and you love them, you might actually listen to them. Amen? See, six people, it's growing. It wants to hide itself. It's very hidden. And then the third thing that I want you to hear about sin from this, the way that God is describing this to Cain and to us in the Bible is that it will kill you. It will kill you. That's what predators do. It's where all sin leads to death. In the Bible, consistently, all you ever hear about the path or the end destination of sin is death. James 1.15 would say it this way, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. From the moment that sin has entered the world, it has always led to death. There is no other path for sin. It has always ultimately been about your death. And before Christ... There was no solution. And even in Christ, even in Christ with the power to fight sin, sin wants to kill. It wants to kill your joy. It wants to kill your walk. It wants to kill your pursuit of the Lord. It wants to kill your relationships. It wants to kill your energy. It wants to kill your peace and your confidence in Christ. Sin kills is what it does. The seriousness of sin is this. It's completely against you. It's very, very hidden. And it wants to kill you. How's that for a cheery message? <clears throat> but point two is this, the sweetness of God. I want you to see how gentle God is with Cain in this process because we often describe the God of the Old Testament as being this wrath and fearful God who, who wants to go fire and brimstone on everybody, but God is incredibly gentle here. 
So why was Cain's gift rejected? Uh, he gives of the fruit or grain offerings, and his brother Abel gives of the firstborn and the fat portions of his sacrifice. And, and we know that it's not because he gave fruit or grain that was the actual problem, because if you go into uh, how they will end up doing different types of sacrificial work in the temple, there'll be both grain offerings and there'll be different animal offerings. So the, it's not a matter of one being a farmer and one being a shepherd. There are two unique things about Abel's gift that set it apart from Cain's. The first is that it's the firstborn of the flock, meaning it's the choice, it's the best. And the fat portions are considered to be the best cuts. So he's giving the best of the best to God. They represent the best he could possibly give to God. And he gives it freely. You see, Abel views the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 to his parents that ultimately sin would be conquered through a descendant of Eve. He views this promise of God who's still going to take care of Adam and Eve even outside the garden, and he wants to honor God because of that. And so he views this relationship with God as what we would call a covenantal relationship, one that is of a promise that God has made, one in which he wants to honor God because of it. But, but Cain, Cain views this relationship as a transactional relationship in which he's going to try to earn something. And, and the reason we know this is we can flip all the way forward to Hebrews 11.4, and we can see that Hebrews 11.4 will tell us that Abel gave his gift to God in faith, and Cain did not. Because Cain, it, the nature of a transactional relationship is that I have terms for it, and Cain wants to come to God with this gift on his terms, He's not interested in honoring God or pleasing God. He's interested in getting God's blessing with the least amount of effort as possible. That's transactional. When I go to the store, I want to pay the least amount of money possible for a product or service. That's the nature of a transaction. In a covenantal relationship, I want to please and honor the other person. God cares about this because God cares about a person's heart more than the sacrifice or the obedience God cares about the heart, uh, your heart more than anything else. Consistently in Scripture, Psalm 51, 16, Hosea 6, 6, 1 Samuel 15, 22, again and again and again, God's going to tell you he cares about your heart. And he rejects Cain's offering as a gentle correction. You don't see fire and brimstone. Cain brings an inauthentic offering to God. He doesn't kill him for it. We think of that as being the Old Testament God, but go look at you know, Acts 5 when Ananias and Sapphira come in with the lying about a gift they're giving and see what that reaction looks like. He's very gentle here. He just rejects the gift. Why does he reject the gift? Because the heart attitude is wrong here. This is not ever meant to be transactional. You don't get to, you don't get to transact with God. You don't get to put your terms on God. That's not how this works. And if your heart, God is jealous over the spirit that he put in us. If your heart is not attuned and in sold out to God, if you're giving him partial worship, you're going to consistently see in Scripture where he rejects that. In Revelation 3, 15 and 16, he says, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus would actually quote Isaiah, and he would tell the Pharisees, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. See, Cain wants to, you know, be mostly honorable to God. 
You and I understand kind of what that means because we do a lot of the same thing when it comes to honoring God. Like, I'll give you some worship, God. I'll give you worship for 90 minutes on Sunday morning, God, but you can't have all of the worship of my heart because that would require me to be thinking about you all the time from Monday through Saturday, and I got other things to think about. We'll give him some of our praise, but not our whole heart. We'll, we'll give him some of our money, but not in a spirit-led, sacrificial way. We'll give him some of our servanthood, but, but not if it messes up my schedule or makes me miss my favorite show or if I have to push back lunch. Whoa. We'll find ourselves going through the religious motions of worship and pursuit without the heart, and God will correct us lovingly. He wants our whole heart because it's a covenantal relationship. If you're married, I think you automatically understand this. The, the relationship between you and God is meant to be covenantal like a marriage was meant to be. If you went to your spouse, you said, hey, this week I've been mostly faithful to you, honey. At least four days out of the week. It would not go well for you. Why? Because that's not how that works. It's not a transaction. You made a covenant, a commitment to the other person. It's the whole heart. And God rightly rejects half-hearted worship and says, I don't want any part of that. And he, he corrects Cain. He rejects that. And then Cain gets angry. And what does he do? He comes to him and he warns him. He's already sinned and he's warning him again. Cain, why are you angry? He's asking him, Pro process this. Why are you angry? You're, you're merely being corrected. Look, I, I'm familiar with the concept of being corrected and getting angry, amen? We call that defensiveness. It's generally pride that's welled up inside us. We hate correction, even though the Bible tells us we should be corrected, and only a fool doesn't receive correction, but anyways. <laughs> He's corrected, he gets angry at God, and what's interesting is he gets angry at God and he takes it out on his brother, which we also tend to do a lot as well. He corrects him lovingly, and then he warns him again, you don't understand the path that you're headed down. You don't see it, but it's crouching at your door. He's, he's lovingly trying to guide Cain. Cain goes out and murders his brother. And you know what God does? God, God must punish this injustice, but God is gentle with Cain even at the end. Listen to this. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You should be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And here's Cain. Listen to how Cain responds to God being caught murdering his brother. Here's Cain. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Sound like someone who's really sorry that he killed his brother, really remorseful, really repentant? Now to say one thing about that. Oh my gosh, you punished me too harshly for killing my brother. My punishment's too heavy. And then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Do you see how gentle God is with him? He's taking, he, he's not, there must be justice. 
when innocent blood is shed. He is a God of justice. To, to not have punishment associated to the fact that Abel has been murdered and innocent blood has been shed, God would not be true to his character. There must be justice. But even in the justice, he takes Cain, who is not remorseful, who's not repentant, and he is gentle with him, still chasing after someone who is in sin and in rebellion and not remorseful. And if that doesn't sound like you and I, then I don't know what does. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus has done for you and I is in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our sin, not remorseful, he just tracks us down anyways. And if, listen, if God would be this sweet and this gentle to Cain who has no remorse and no repentance and doesn't even care, how much more so is he to you and I who know the repentance of God, who know the, that the blood of Jesus has been shed for us and know that we have now power over sin because of him. That is the sweetness of God. And then lastly, this passage shows us the significance of sacrifice. Why sacrifice matters so much. And we're going to tie this together so you can understand that the gospel theme runs right through this, even in Genesis 4. And it's not the sacrifice of animals, even though that's part of this story. It's that Abel is sacrificing in faith, in honoring God, and Cain... Cain is trying to push into this thing where he gets to uh, make an agreement with God, transact with God, earn God's favor. He wants a blessing by doing a certain amount of things. If you, if you remember the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15, there's an older brother in that story, and he's very bitter, and he's very angry, and he thinks that he's earned something from his dad, and he's really angry when his dad freely gives it to somebody else, right? And Cain is the, Cain is the older brother in this story. Cain th thinks he deserves something from God. And it, it kind of leaves us thinking about, like, are we, are we Cain or are we Abel in the story? Like, how do we know in our lives when we're, we're honoring God and we're coming to God in faith or when we're going to God and we're, we're trying to transact with him and we think we're earning something from God? When life doesn't go the way you want it to go, do you get bitter and angry like Cain? Like Cain is primarily angry because he believes God owes him something. And I think a lot of us end up at different times in our life doing this with God. We're mad at what's going on in our life because we think God owes us better because we've earned it somehow. We claim with our lips to be saved by grace. But when life's not going well, when difficulty is around us, it turns us bitter and mad and angry. And that anger at God is so often directed at other people. It is the implication of our sin. So how do we, how do we live like an Abel? If we're, if we're constantly trying to not live like a Cain and be on this transactional basis with God, how do we live like an Abel? I think to live like an Abel, you have to look at the greater Abel. Who's the greater Abel? Well, Abel's life and death actually both point at the greater Abel because many, many years after Abel, there's gonna be another descendant of Eve and he will come filled with faith just like Abel and he will honor God in faith just like Abel and he will be killed by Cain's just like Abel was killed by Cain. Because Cain is a very religious person. Have you caught that? He's very religious. He's very moral. He wants to follow the rules and do just the minimum. He gave his sacrifices and he deserves God's blessings. He wants to use God, not serve God. The people who killed Jesus Christ, they're very religious. They're very moral. They give lots of things at the temple. They want to use God, not serve God. The Cains killed Jesus, just as Cain killed Abel. 
But Jesus is the greater Abel, and that's actually what this story is going to point to. And I want to show you that in Scripture, that the New Testament is going to point all the way back to Genesis 4 and show us how Jesus is the greater Abel. You remember that original sin that we, we talked about at the beginning of the sermon where uh, Eve is tricked into thinking that if she could just be like God, things would be okay. And, and that really comes from Lucifer, who Satan thinks if he could just be God, then things would be okay. I want you to actually look at the greater Abel, at Jesus Christ, who actually does the opposite. He actually was equal with God and counted that to be nothing in order to sacrifice himself for us. It's the transposition of these two things. It says this in Philippians 2.6, about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, instead of falling into this lie that if he could just be like God, things would be okay, was actually God, and instead emptied himself of much of his deity and his godhood in order to come down to be wrapped in human flesh and die for us. The very opposite of the original sin. And if you look at verse 10 here, it says, Abel's blood cries out for justice. It cries out to God. The cry is justice. In the Old Testament, you'll consistently see that when innocent blood is shed, it cries out for justice. But Jesus, who sheds innocent blood on the cross, his, his blood does not cry out for justice. Instead, in Hebrews 12, through 24, it says this, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to, here he is, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is Hebrews pointing back to Genesis 4 about? It's saying innocent blood when it's shed always cries out for justice until you get to the gospel. In the gospel, Jesus Christ comes to us and he lives a perfect life and he lives by faith and he glorifies the Father and he empties himself of all of this greatness in order to live a humble life and die for us. And now his innocent blood, which was shed, no longer screams out for justice. It screams out mercy for you and I. Mercy. That's the significance of the sacrifice that this story all the way back in Genesis 4 would point all the way forward to a savior who would give himself for us and die and shed his blood, not to, scr to scream out for justice, but rather to provide for us a path and a way. You and I, the Cains of this world. So what do we do with this today? Let me, let me just talk through the application point. If you don't know Christ as your personal savior, you need Jesus' blood in order to have not only access to God, but any, any chance to master this predator outside your door that is sin. The sad part of Genesis 4 is that because Cain did not have Jesus, he did not have the Holy Spirit, he never had a chance to actually win the fight throughout his life over sin. But you and I, we're in a different boat. We we have an opportunity through the blood of Christ, not simply to know God, not simply to be justified, not simply to be forgiven of our sins, but to live in a life in which we can actually have mastery over sin. We have that opportunity because of Jesus. I, I do hope that we start this series off with a good perspective of sin. And what that means is understanding that sin is never for you, that it's trying to hide itself, but that ultimately sin is trying to kill you. And I think that in American church particularly, we Christians don't take sin serious. 
We've been given all the power necessary through the Holy Spirit and through access to God to actually deal with our sin, to, to chase after God, to conquer over this fleshly nature because of our new nature in Christ. And yet oftentimes it is our skewed perspective and our underestimation of it that causes the problem. My favorite analogy about sin is from Matt Chandler, and he gets it from Genesis 4. And he says, when you entertain sin, it's like you, you've decided to adopt a baby pet lion and bring it in your house. And you think, man, it's cute. Look at how it plays with that ball. Oh, those things sure are sharp. Good thing they're small. But you keep it in close. And if you were being honest, if you really had the right perspective, you, there's none of us that would leave our children at home with a 400-pound lion and be like, yeah, it's probably going to turn out okay. Unless your kids have been really bad lately. Um, <clears throat> of course we wouldn't. But when it, when it looks cute and it looks cuddly, it's fine. And we bring it in and we, and we, we pet it and we feed it and we, we buy it a little doggy bed and everything's cute until the dog disappears, the cat disappears, JJ disappears. Why? That's what we do with sin in American culture. We say it's not that big of a deal. It's a small thing. It's not a serious sin. It's not. Listen, there is one, one biblical response to sin in the Bible. One appropriate response. You take that lion out in the backyard, you put a bullet in its head, and you bury it in the backyard. Sin is serious. You treat it that way. It's life or death. It wants to kill you. You don't play with that. You don't make a pet out of that. You don't put it in your bed and sleep with it at night. And if we would view sin that way, we would flee from it. We would run from it. And here's the other thing we do. When we got into community together and we began to really fall in love with other people in our community group, and then we saw sin in their lives, we would actually speak up because we care. Because if you viewed sin that way, you wouldn't have any other choice but then to tell someone that you loved that there was danger, right? If you saw a good friend or relative or your spouse walking out in the middle of the street and there was a bus coming, you would say something? Maybe? Oh, I would, but I'm not really an extrovert. No, I would, but I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. No, they're going to get hit by a bus. You're going to be like, whoa, look out. You don't care about being embarrassed. You don't care about even, you, you, just, you don't want to get hit by a bus. Because it matters because you have a right perspective of what happens when a bus hits a person. So if we had the right perspective of what happens when sin comes into our life and just wrecks everything and breaks relationships and hurts people and creates damage and pain and chaos, we'd go, oh, I don't want that for you. It's willing, I'm willing to be uncomfortable. I'm willing to have a conversation with you. I'm willing to come to you and just, hey, you can't tolerate, that's sin. That's right, that's outside your door and it wants to kill you. Instead of sitting around nonchalantly and being like, yeah, it's probably not that big of a deal. The Bible would consistently say that one of the ways that we know God loves us is that he disciplines us, he corrects us, he rebukes us. In fact, only a fool doesn't like correction, doesn't take correction. So in the context of biblical community in our church and in our community groups, one of the reasons we're sitting around and having tough conversations is because we actually love one another. It is the sign that we do. And we're walking with people and we're extending grace. We're not there to beat them over the head with their sin. We're there to warn them and then walk with them. Amen? We warn them and we walk with them. So what we're going to do with this is we're going to give you a couple opportunities here as we close this service in prayer. 
The first is that as you talk to God today, as we close this out, we just spent a few minutes praying and, and asking God to, to search us, that there would be some things that the Spirit would reveal in you that you have a realization, maybe you've been underestimating. It might be a good idea to go to that close accountability that you have in your life and have a conversation about whether or not that's as dangerous as you've been treating it. And the second is, it's, you know, there's 40 of you with red shirts on for a reason. We're launching groups and we want you to be in one. We think it'll help you. We think it'll save you at times. Save you a lot of pain. And it'll help you grow and understand the sweetness of God and how he's indwelled us with a power to actually overcome sin and to live a phenomenal life. So we're gonna do that and give you an opportunity for that in just a moment as well. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us so much that you didn't leave us like Cain to wallow in our sin, to struggle with it with no ability to actually win the war. God, thank you that you've sent your son whose blood screams out mercy for us, who chases us down when we're not repentant and loves us until we are. God, thank you for the biblical community at our church people that are willing to walk with one another and love one another and grow together. Thank you for everything you're going to do through this series as you transform and change our church uh, to desire to be holy and to desire to see you move. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.